FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us for today's show. As usual, you can watch us on Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB news page on Facebook. Or you can, uh, and you can communicate with us on Facebook Live, as many of you already do. Uh, you can also tweet us at politicsgpb. And I don't mention it enough, uh, but I should. If you can't be with us when we're on the radio, uh, you can always watch a, 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 the broadcast on Facebook, but you can also uh, subscribe to our podcast, the Political Rewind podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. So, Greg Bluestein, political reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, good to have you with us uh, for today's show. Thanks for having me. You're right gonna get a little, you, yeah, that's what I was about to ask you. You have been working so hard throughout this entire election year. Are you going to get a little time off? Oh, yeah. I'm going to be gone uh, pretty much all of next week. All right. Good. Good. Just come back when we're back on the air in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about that schedule in a minute. Uh, Amy Steigerwald is right next to you. She's political science professor at Emory, at Emory <laughs> Georgia State <laughs> University. Amy, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad. Always glad to have Emory you. Emory undergrad, though, if that helps. Yeah. You there you go. Emory undergrad, and where'd you do your graduate work? Berkeley. Berkeley. Oh, well, we know Seriously. where you. Yeah, you are serious business. <laughs> <laughs> and Patricia Murphy, who is um, a columnist for Roll Call and for the Daily Beast, and is also your writing for Garden and Gun. What kind of pieces are you filing for Garden and Gun? I'm assuming they're not political. Uh, they are not at all political. I call it my palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I do a lot of travel pieces. Oh, good. Some falconry, some beach combing. It's really terrible. Wow. <laughs> Where was the best travel place you went to for the for the column? Uh, well, I did get to go to Ted Turner's private island, uh, oh, wow. which he has just uh, gifted with a small fee back to the state of South Carolina, which will soon be a state park that people from South Carolina and everywhere, all of us can go to together. It, has that piece appeared in the magazine yet? It's in the current issue with the with the pretty black dog on the cover. Okay, yes. so people who read Garden and Gun will <laughs> definitely want to look at that. Patricia also worked on the Hill for uh, Max Cleveland when he was in the U.S. Senate, um, for Sam Nunn before that. Uh, so you have uh, those credentials as well. Yes, thank you. Um, all right. Uh, by the way, all of these uh, folks, inc- and Jim Galloway, uh, were in the studio with us late this morning. We recorded a show that we're going to bring to you next Monday, December 31st at 2 o'clock, the top 10 political stories in Georgia of 2018. And I think we had a pretty good mix of stories, Bluestein. Yeah, we were up and down. We were all all across the board, but we had a lot of um, election-related stories and policy-related stories and um, Deal and Kemp and Abrams-related stories. Okay, uh, Tom Faust is saying in my air, it's also going to be broadcast on GPB TV on the 30th at 9 Oh, Sunday, December 30th at 9 a.m. So you could listen clothes. to it then. Um, all right. So let's get to town on our live show today, Greg Bluestein. Uh, your colleague, Jim Galloway, had a terrific column this morning. Um, and he starts it by saying, let's forget for a minute the federal judge in Texas who just ruled Obamacare unconstitutional. And let's proceed essentially under the uh, uh, impression that uh, Obamacare probably will remain uh, legal, that the appeals courts may very well reverse what the judge did. But regardless of that, it's interesting because on this show the other day, I asked the question of whether that ruling would disincentivize Georgia legislators from considering expanding Medicaid under ACA. Galloway is picking up signals, as I'm sure you are, that they're still talking about it. You got it. I mean, if you're if you're under the assumption that 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 either even if it is struck down, that it would take years or months for this, at least months, but maybe years for the court to the case to wind its way through the legal system, um, or it could be overturned by the appeals court or even the Supreme Court, then you've got a plan for for now. And you're hearing an increasing number of lawmakers either outright open to Medicaid expansion, which we know will not happen under Brian Kemp because he's vowed that it won't happen 
many, many different times, or a, a, you know some sort of Medicaid waiver program. And Jim is sort of outlining a maybe a grand compromise there. Uh, there's a quote in his column from Terry England, who, of course, is the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. There was a, a, a phone call, Greg, if I have this straight, that England and other legislative leaders were on with at least one representative of the Trump administration. And apparently the call dealt with the fact that the administration is looking for several states to be incubators for new ways to expand Medicaid under waivers. Is that remember, right? You got it. And remember, um, Brian Kemp did not put Tom Price on his transition team by accident. And um, Tom Price is not there, as Galloway wrote, to help hash out his gun policy or his uh, rural health, rural uh, broadband plan. It is all for health care. And Tom Price, as the former HHS secretary, knows a thing or two about waivers and you know how a state can be more innovative in, in using that funding. So I expect that the state to go in that direction uh, pretty quickly. Patricia, the quote from uh, Terry England is, what we understand from the administration in numerous ways, numerous conversations, is that they're open to just about any kind of waiver proposals from states that would help address that working poor category. Yes. And uh, if you go back to when Obamacare was uh, to be repealed in the Senate and there was that dramatic vote where John McCain came in and did his thumbs down, a significant amount of the opposition to repealing Obamacare and the Medicaid piece of it, the Medicaid expansion piece, were from Republican governors, uh, specifically in Arizona and Ohio. There are states run by Republicans who have had enormous success in expanding Medicaid or people's access to Medicaid. And it really tends to cut across Republican areas of states where it is uh, or older, rural, less affluent, though that is exactly where hospitals are closing down and leaving uh, many of their constituents with really no options except to get in the car for four hours and drive back to Atlanta. So it's uh, obviously uh, Grady and uh, an urban population feel that they would benefit from it, but it's really the rural states that are have got to have a solution to this situation. Amy, I'm not quite sure what waivers mean. It's a very broad word term. Uh, during the campaign, I think I'm correct that Brian Kemp, when he talked about waivers, talked about them in terms of uh, supplementing uh, the uh, uh, affordable care fees that uh, people were already paying to get insurance. And that's probably valuable, but it's not the same as insuring the folks who don't have insurance. And I'm not sure that's where he's headed, but that was what he talked about. Yeah, I think what's difficult is nobody's entirely sure what a waiver looks like. And so there's a lot of sort of different things that are being rolled out. So certainly one version is to try to give a little bit of extra subsidy for those who have insurance but are having issues paying premiums. Um, another place where we've seen a lot of information on waivers is perhaps putting some sort of um, additional perhaps work requirement on it or uh, showing that you've been involved in community service so that then you're able to be able to, uh, if you are like within a certain, like to expand the number of people that uh, go for Medicaid or something like that to be able to put in. Um, there's also what I think is probably what the, uh, definitely the Trump administration has talked a lot about recently. And so um, I'm not sure if the Kemp administration is thinking about looking at this as well, is limited health plans so that there are, there's access that you're getting and perhaps even increasing on um, what that uh, income level is that's able to get access to it, but it's not the full range of health care. So it might have higher deductibles. It might cover uh, less of the particular things or perhaps waiving some of those um, essential benefits and things like that. And this all dovetails into another fight that's going to happen at the legislature next year over certificate of need. It's a very wonky term, but essentially that, those are the regulations that guide how hospitals can operate, what the, what services they can offer, because hospitals really don't want some outside, you know, some small startup to start taking away some of their more uh, lucrative offerings while the hospitals still have to do emergency rooms, operate emergency rooms and the other uh, things that don't make them as much money. And so there's, there's a really uh, consensus among some lawmakers that this is this coming year is the year to roll back some of those certificate of need 
uh, regulations, and this could be hand-in-hand hand with some sort of Medicaid waiver well, slasher. in fact, uh, Scott Holcomb, Democrat Scott Holcomb, uh, Holcomb, was on our show on Friday. He's, of course, a legislator, and he said the same thing. He And, of course, the certificate of need, uh, Patricia, could be for something like a hospital spends a lot of money on a new MRI machine or the latest technology for diagnosis, uh, diagnosing various illnesses. They don't want to compete once they've put that money in to the hospital down the street who goes and buys the same piece of equipment. So that's particularly important in metro Atlanta, where you have a heavier concentration of medical services. And Hokum suggested that as a Democrat, he might be willing to look at a trade between uh, certificate of need and Medicaid for uh, to cover more Georgians. Yeah, it does seem like the stars could really align in this year because it's not an election year, because the heat would be off of um, any kind of a deal that you would have to make as as governor for Brian Kemp, uh, that he could reach across the aisle with Democrats and say, what can I sort of deliver for Metro Atlanta that it's also going to be good for my uh, for the people who have made a lot of promises to in rural Georgia. And so it seems like uh, if anything's going to move in the next two years, it will be something that moves in the next two months. Yeah, that's really important. This is not likely to happen in an election year, is it? Yeah, this is the big this is the big opportunity for Brian Kemp, because in election year, a, everyone's going to get out of the Capitol as quickly as possible to start running for re-election. And everything will be even more hyper-partisanized because David Perdue will be on the ballot. Donald Trump will be on the ballot. Everything's up for grabs. Um, here's what's interesting. Uh, and, and I throw this out to all of you, but Amy, I'll give you the first shot at this. Uh, the AJC, you all did an interview with David Ralston the other day. Ralston said that, in, in effect, it was Jim who did that interview. And Ralston said that the problem that he sees with expanding Medicaid is that he doesn't trust the federal money will be there to cover it. Well, Amy, if a federal judge now says that Medicaid is illegal, unconstitutional, that plays right into the scenario that Ralston's talking about, where he fears that we might expand, and the next thing you know, the rug is pulled out from under us, and federal funds suddenly dry up, and the state's left to pay the bills. Which is a fair concern. I mean, and really, I think the issue that we've had for, you know, particularly the last uh, two years and maybe sort of four before that is this idea of not really having stability in what the system is going to look like on the federal level, especially with all of the efforts to repeal and replace. Um, part of the issue was it wasn't clear what the replacement was, right, what it would do, where it would happen, what was going to be the rollout, where this was going to have. And it really is creating in a lot of these markets, right, even for the employer based markets and creating a lot of uncertainty. And it's very much so in something like the Medicaid expansion. And that's a thing to, I mean, there's a real reason for states to be worried about that because it's a, you know, sort of a large term, but it's unfunded mandates, right? These come down from the federal government a lot where they say do X, but they don't actually give the states the funds to do it. And that can be a problem, especially in a state which doesn't have a lot of wiggle room in its budget, where it's got to be able to figure out where that extra money comes from. And so I think that is of concern. But on the other side, there's all so especially in these rural areas that we're talking about, you've got hospitals leaving in a lot of places. There's not good coverage of care. And you also have an aging population in these areas, which means that health care costs are going to rise. And so those tensions are going to come into play. And so something's got to be done. And Ralston's position kind of characterizes the general GOP in Georgia opposition. Right. Uh, they say that, yeah, the federal government will pick up 90 percent or so the first couple of years of, of, of the Medicaid expansion fees, but not there's no guarantee for long term. What Democrats have tapped into is the sentiment that the majority of the population uh, is in, in poll after poll after poll su supports Medicaid expansion. And, and that includes many rural Georgians, too. And, and as Amy mentioned, Rural hospitals are closing left and right. We've had a number, more than a dozen have closed or in financial distress, and there's no answer to that. But also, um, if for every year that Georgia does not expand Medicaid, they are leaving hundreds of millions of dollars on the table. Federal money, yeah. Yes, federal money. Uh, those are those are years where Georgia taxpayers are obviously continuing to send their money into the IRS, and we are essentially subsidizing other states' Medicaid expansion instead of our own Medicaid expansion. Um, for Ralston, I, it's very legitimate to say we don't know what's going to happen with Obamacare, but what we do know is that there is a critical mass of states that have already expanded Medicaid, so there 
there would be an enormous impetus on Congress. There's no way Congress could ever leave town without finding a, a solution for these states if they are left holding the bag. There's no way um, that Ohio, Arizona, California, New York, that those that those House members and senators are going to say, oh, good luck with the, that 90 percent we said we'd pay you. Forget it. You know, there's no way. <laughs> All right. Uh, obviously, it's going to be an interesting issue to watch once the legislature convenes in, uh, in mid-January, January 14th. I January think. 14th. January 14th. You'll be there, won't you? Bluestein? Oh, yeah. Oh, of course you will. Uh, as long as we're talking about uh, health care issues and the state, Greg, let's talk about a somewhat uh, parochial issue in the sense that it's really inside baseball uh, that has to do with uh, Senator Renee Underman, who has been the uh, chair of the uh, Health and Human Health Committee, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, in the Senate, and who's been a pretty powerful advocate for any number of health care reforms. She's not in the favor with uh, Brian Kemp. What's happening with this? Or, or apparently um, Senate leadership, too. And there's all sorts of talks about reshuffling committee chairs. And hers is the one that keeps on coming up. Um, and I got a call out of the blue from a Democratic senator in uh, Freddie Powell Sims from from the Albany area um, who, who said that I don't usually wade into Republican politics, but I am going to wade into this one. Uh, I support Renee Utterman. And I was kind of, you know, taken aback by that. I did not think that that was why she was calling me. Of all the things to talk about, I thought it was Hurricane Michael or something like that. Um, But it was one of those sort of rare shows of of bipartisanship uh, when it comes to Senate committee leadership. And she said, the reason I support Renee Utterman is not because she's a supporter of Medicaid expansion, which she is. Yes. Uh, but it's because she's she's the one who she's she's the Senate committee chairwoman who shows up when when needed. Um, and that means that for her, that meant after Hurricane Michael, that meant uh, getting some more information about infant mortality rates, about opioid abuse, about helping the only doctor in Clay County keep her doors open because her facility is so run down that uh, that apparently Senator Underman's helped sort of get some sort of deal with Mercer University to, to build a new facility. Um, so basically said the election's over. Now it's time to find the best leaders for these committees. And this Democratic state senator said Renee Underman's the, the woman. It got pretty job. ugly uh, with Underman during the campaign. It, not Brian Kemp himself, but one of his campaign uh, spokespeople uh, really, when she when she criticized Kemp, basically raised questions about her mental, mental sanity. Health. Yeah, yeah. Um, said that she needed to get back on her her medication. So they had a very icy relationship. And remember, Senator Underman was not just a supporter of Casey Hagel, but a very one of the probably one of his top deputies in the Senate, and was in line for some sort of state health department leadership post had he won. And so it was a real it was real. She took it real personally, I think, after after uh, after Casey Cagle lost. But they've seemed to have made amends. You know, it's oh, they have. I think. So, mean, do you imagine she will retain her position as chair of the committee? I, I it's, you don't know. Yeah, it's looking doubtful, though. I oh, mean, it, it is. It's, All right, uh, we'll we'll find out in the next couple of days. Well, but. here's what's one of the other things politically that's interesting about this, Patricia, is here's a. Republican suburban woman uh, in a county, Gwinnett, uh, that Republicans lost in the in the gubernatorial. I mean, they need people like Renee Unterman uh, to try to rebuild what they've lost in in the North Metro counties. They just may not think they need her. You know, I think that any politician goes out on a limb. If you choose to criticize a member of your party during a campaign, if that person comes back and says, you know, I think I don't really need you as the head of that committee. That's not actually unusual. No, and it's you certainly very should, politics. You should expect it. You know, yeah. I've gone out on a limb yeah. and I made the wrong choice. Um, however, for Republicans, um, I think optically, if they choose not to go with Renee Utterman, they certainly need to find a way to promote another woman, specifically a suburban woman who could someday in this lifetime get on Atlanta, <laughs> Atlanta TV and present a face to uh, pres- present a face of this party that is not an old white man. And there's only one other suburban Republican woman in the state Senate, and, and, and that's Kate Kirkpatrick from uh, from the sort of a Cobb-ish area. So they'll need to put her in bubble wrap, make sure she's taken very well to, you know, well taken care of and promote her like crazy if they're smart. All right. Amy, you want to weigh in or we are ready to move on? 
I agree with what's been said. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Let's move on to the criminal justice reform bill that passed in the Senate last night, Greg. I think 87 to 12, one of the few bipartisan measures to get through the Congress since the uh, uh, president was uh, sworn in in 2016. And President Trump can justifiably say that this was a victory for him. He's been promoting this. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was uh, one of the people who led the charge on criminal justice reform. And uh, Mitch McConnell was a sticking point for a while. There were uh, conservative Republicans in uh, his conference who were worried that it would look so- they'd look soft on crime. Tom Cotton, uh, uh, I think uh, Ted um, Cruz. And yet, but in the long run, the president said, McConnell, you better you better get a vo- to a vote on this. And it passed overwhelmingly. And then this bill has <clears throat> deep Georgia ties. Remember, the president had Governor Deal up to the up to the White House not so long ago, just a few months ago, to talk about his approach to criminal justice. Parts of the bill are modeled after Georgia's state level approach. And remember, in the House, one of the lead sponsors is Doug Collins, who represents one of the most conservative districts east of the Mississippi. Yeah, in the U.S. House, of course, we're yeah, talking in the about US now. Doug Collins worked very hard for this measure, Amy. Definitely. I mean, there there's a lot of Georgia ties to this measure, and it does a lot of, you know, de- doesn't matter which side of the aisle that you're on, right? There's a reason the ACLU is supporting it as strongly as, right, President Trump was, that it does a lot to address many of the issues that are that are happening, right? There are sort of the unintended consequences that have developed from some of the strict mandatory minimum laws and especially the sort of two and three strike laws where if somebody committed a second or a third felony, they got life in prison. Um, turns out, A, it's really expensive, and B, sometimes what counts as a felony is not what we think of as a felony, and that was sending people for what seemed like very minor crimes to, uh, for, you know, life in prison and things like that. And so shifting there and also, again, um, trying to do sort of more of the diversionary tactics. And so I think that, you know, Georgia can feel really good about the fact that we really were one of the first ones to sort of revolutionize, right, or reform the criminal justice system, the juvenile justice system as well. Um, a lot of people worked really hard on that around the same time, and it, it had a big impact. You know, Patricia, another interesting Georgia tie is that uh, Ralph Reed's Faith and Freedom Coalition uh, was uh, has been for for a number of years now. I think about three years has been pushing through its members for uh, criminal justice reform as well, which may seem counterintuitive, and maybe it's something Tom Cotton and a Ted Cruz ought to have thought of been thinking about uh, when an organization that is considered that conservative, in fact, in this context, says no. Social justice demands change. Yes. So if you look at somebody like Doug Collins, a pastor, and uh, he teamed up with Hakeem Jeffries, I mean, he really was uh, the, the author of this bill. The two of them authored this bill together, and it shows the incredible breadth of the political coalition that was required to get a bill like this through. And so you had the Congressional Black Caucus, Freedom Works. Uh, uh, Jared Kushner was a huge part of moving this bill forward. Ted Cruz eventually got on board as well. And it really did take also, though, those Republican governors going to Bedminster, Um, Nathan Deal told the president that being smart on crime is different from being tough on crime because on the campaign trail, Donald Trump was not remotely interested in this issue. And he talks a lot about, obviously, lock him up, lock her up, lock them all up. Um, He really was not particularly involved on this issue. And and it really took a very broad coalition. It was just it's the first example I've seen this year of really old fashioned legislating, of building a coalition, of individually picking off member after member after member, making a deal with McConnell to, at the very least, get a vote after the election. And here we are. It felt like the old days. I love it. I love it. I mean, look at another Georgia parallel. Look, I had a chance to sit down with the governor deal this morning to talk about his legacy. And in, in 2010, this was also not the centerpiece of his agenda by any means. It was it was a part of it, but it was not the, the centerpiece. And it was and back then you wouldn't have you know made the prediction that eight years later you would look back at criminal justice reforms and think that, that was the biggest one of his biggest accomplishments. But it certainly was. And um, he did the same thing. He said, look, if I had gone into this and tried to do it all comprehensive in one big piece, it would never have passed. And I would have had a big whopping failure early in my term. But instead he did it in an eight-year process. Uh, that, that extended till this very year um, and was and it was able to get these initiatives done working from one lawmaker to another and getting most of most of his part of the package uh, approved overwhelmingly. And uh, he said this morning, he said it's an affirmation that states can set examples for the federal government 
Then he got a little emotional. He said he hears frequently from people who were given second chances because of, of the state's overhaul. And he started choking up and says, those are the kinds of results that affect the individual lives of people. Government ought to be able to do that, positively affect the lives of citizens. That's great. When are you uh, running that piece? When will people be able well, to Well, that quote it? will be in tomorrow's piece for um, today, but okay. there'll be a bigger piece in early January. Uh, a couple of quick things. I know we're late for a break, but bear with me there in the control room. Uh, Amy, uh, I think it's fair to say that at least a good portion of why this reform bill has been so important is because it, 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 it is an effort to uh, deal with the fact that the criminal laws in this country have been disproportionately harsh on African-American defendants, right? Or at least disproportionately harsh on minority defendants, as well as those who uh, are lower socioeconomic status. Um, the the literature on this, the studies that have been done on it, are really very clear that you see not only are uh, minorities and those of lower socioeconomic status more likely to be simply arrested for crimes. They're also more likely to then be charged and sentenced. And a lot of times those sentences are disproportionate. I've had a number of students that have done uh, projects looking at it, and you find that if you sort of control for everything else that, on average, someone who's a minority is going to get a longer sentence as well. And, and they're also going to be charged more str more strictly, which has it, it directly correlates to what kind of sentence you're going to get. And so it's a concern. All right. I want to get to a break. Uh, but before I do, fun fact, Robert Jimison uh, just pulled up on the uh, Magic Google machine a uh, piece of information. Nathan Deal gives to every new judge in the state a gavel made by state prisoners. Good work, Jimison. <laughs> All right, I want to talk about this a little bit more because in fact, Nathan Deal gets credit for having been an inspiration and a model for some of what uh, is, is now uh, almost certain to be, be signed by the president into law after the House goes back and takes one more crack at it. Uh, but there's a bookend effect here because uh, Governor Zell Miller was in the leading wave that was leaning in the exact opposite direction. And I think it's kind of be fun, if nothing else, to play a little of, of uh, Zell Miller on that, and we'll do that right after the break. They say it takes 30 days to form a habit. Hi, I'm Ophira Eisenberg, and if your New Year's resolution is to be more informed, you don't need 30 days. Make a year-end gift right now, and you'll start a good habit immediately. And when you commit to monthly giving, you know you'll stick with it. It's a lot easier and less painful than going to the gym more, so get ahead on your goals. You just have to get behind us. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now. Go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Okay, so Nathan Deal uh, gets credit, as we've just discussed, for uh, inspiring to some extent, helping model the criminal justice reform that is uh, dealt with, has been dealt with in Congress now. Uh, but in uh, 1994, Zell Miller, Governor Miller, who was in that year uh, going to face a reelection campaign by the end of the year, gave a state of the state address in which he became one of the early proponents, not of let's reform how we punish, but let's get even tougher on how we uh, punish. And he became a leader nationally in terms of getting tougher. Listen to just a little of that January 11th, uh, 1994 state of the state speech. In Georgia, I want it to be where if you do the crime, you are going to do the time. No parole, no loopholes, no exceptions. And once a criminal has committed a second violent felony, that's right, second, I want him gone from society. We will give them a second chance to be responsible citizens, but that's all they get. Some talk about three strikes and you're out. That's in baseball. Violent crime is no game. In Georgia, I want the rule to be two strikes and you're gone. Gone forever. And you know, Amy, that was received with rousing uh, enthusiasm by the legislature, and Zell passed uh, uh, the measures that he talked about. But in fact, that really was 
uh, current thinking in the 90s on how to deal with the uh, with the growing crime rates around the country. It definitely was. So there was nothing about that in many ways that put it out of the ordinary that was sort of following in line. I mean, we saw, um, most people don't remember this, he has recently corrected it, but Jerry Brown was also in favor of doing similar laws in California, right? Moonbeam Jerry is the same one who put those into place at exactly the same time because sort of in that period. And I think one of the things that we've realized sort of, you know, over time that one of the kind of uh, unintended consequences of it was a recognition that, number one, what was not happening were uh, efforts to try to help someone go back into society. So that was sort of number one, that a lot of that was also cut out of the prisons. And so part of the problem was if you're let out of prison and you don't have any money and you don't have a job, what are you supposed to do? Now, that doesn't mean that one should necessarily go commit a crime, but it does make it very difficult, right, especially if you don't know how to do anything else. Um, and the second part of it, which really ran into issues, were, again, uh, this sort of question of what fits in the felony category for the two and three strikes laws, that there were a number of people where um, they were getting, they were falling under the rubric of this, which were not what we were thinking, right? It wasn't the armed robberies. It wasn't violent rapes. It wasn't murder. But it was sometimes even someone stealing a can of beans, but because of where they had done it. And so that was causing issues, too, and so needing to look back over it. Well, I think also Zell Miller and a lot of Democrats, including Bill Clinton, were responding to the politics of Willie Horton. They're in a new political era, and it is time for Democrats to get serious on crime or else lose their next election. I think that was really important. And that was apparently in the mind of Donald Trump until earlier this year. He said, well, what about Willie Horton? Because Jared Kushner would go to him and say, we need to do this. He said, what about Willie Horton, I'm going to get killed in the next election if somebody gets out and commits a crime. And it took Kim Kardashian coming, mm-hmm. this is true, coming to the yes, White House yes. and advocating for Alice Marie Johnson, who had been locked up for life for right. a nonviolent offense, um, to really convince him. And so I would say between Kim Kardashian and uh, Charles Kushner, who was Jared Kushner's father, who also went to prison and sort of opened his own eyes to what really happens in prison and who is really there, um, those were probably the two most important people in this conversation for the president. That's, thank you. Those are really interesting insights. Greg, one of the things that came back to bite uh, Zell Miller uh, in the uh, rear end on this was that the state prison started filling to overflowing. Uh, People would be, if you were arrested in a given local jurisdiction, you'd be sent to the county jail, of course, to await trial. Those jails were filling up. Suddenly, counties had to pay the costs of housing those prisoners. One of the most infamous incidents that uh, Zell Miller had to contend with, having passed this law, was when the then sheriff of DeKalb County, Pat Jarvis, became so incensed about the fact that he could not send any of the convicted prisoners in his jail to state prisons where they belonged, was that he showed up one day during a legislative session, which I, with, I believe, three buses loaded with his county inmates and went in and said, what are you going to do with these people? (laughs) Yeah, and look, and it also bred questions about the the conditions of jails, the expense for backlogs, uh, the requirement that, that, that that defendants get an initial hearing within 72 hours. A lot of that was being missed. All sorts of lawsuits from the ACLU and other civil rights groups that were targeting Georgia's um, Georgia's uh, approach to criminal justice. And what you've seen is a total sea change. Um, and, and it's not just in Georgia, Texas and other conservative states also. It's called the right on crime movement. And what will be really interesting to see is how Brian Kemp approaches this debate. We all know that Stacey Abrams uh, kind of positioned herself as the heir to Deal's criminal justice legacy. She was going to continue to decriminalize certain nonviolent and drug offenses. Um, Brian Kemp said what what Governor Deal did was great when he was going to go in a different direction, that he was going to start increasing penalties for violent criminals. All right. um, Let's move on. Uh, Patricia Murphy, you had a terrific column in Roll Call. I think you probably, it was uh, published yesterday, day before, something like that. It was on Tuesday, okay. whatever day today That's, is. Today's Wednesday. Today's yes, Wednesday. Okay. Uh, the headline, I'm not sure that you write the headlines, but we'll read it anyway. Happy New Year, Republicans. It's downhill from here. Your lead says 2018 will go in the books as a bad one for most Republicans. 
They picked up two seats in the Senate but lost 40 in the House, including uh, losing uh, the 6th District in Georgia. Their numbers among women in the House shrank from 23 to 13, and President Donald Trump can't give away his chief of staff job. Ask anyone who's been there. The only thing worse than losing the majority in Congress is every day after that, and you go on from there. Talk to us about what you're anticipating in 2019 on the Hill. Yes, well, I actually did write that headline. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Some of them I don't get right, but that one they kept. That was a good headline. Uh, so I, I don't know if there's a way for Republican members, especially the ones who were not around for the last Democratic majority, to fully appreciate how different their lives are about to be because it goes from – running the agenda, chairing the committee hearings, um, essentially ignoring the minority party to to any extent that you choose to. And now they're on the other side of that. Um, if this will be Nancy Pelosi, who is just an incredibly skilled negotiator and legislator. Um, and the, and the uh, committees will now be chaired by Democrats instead of Republicans. And I think Democrats believe that part of their mandate this time around was to provide congressional oversight uh, to a president who appears to have had very little or none. Uh, there are 18 House committees with the authority to investigate the president, the administration, the cabinet secretaries, the spending, uh, his bank records, um, and uh, everyone, every 18 of those chairmen will have investigations going. One of the points that you make in this column that certainly will relate to Georgia as the 2020 election cycle picks up is that, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, if you're a winning football, if you're the University of Georgia right now, if you're Alabama, you can recruit anybody you want. Yes. Well, there's a corollary that you point out in Congress. Republicans, given that they're on the losing end of the cycle and that they got all these things swarming in the atmosphere, recruiting could be a real problem for them as they try to get good candidates for 2020. Yes. Even though President Trump has uh, demonstrated his ability to win elections, it's been very hard for other Republicans to win those elections. And as I like to say, you can't sell tickets on the Titanic. You know, if 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 somebody is trying to decide, do I want to run in? Do I want to start this process now? Do I want to start it two years from now after we know what's happening? What has happened with the Mueller investigation? Has President Trump won his election or not? There are are so many unknowns between now and 2020. Any smart Republican who wants to have a career after 2020, I think, stays on the sidelines. Yeah, Amy, uh, this is a real challenge. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see how it makes an impact on Georgia. I mean, I, I suppose Republicans here feel like the state has remained, for the most part, reliably red statewide. But that's certainly starting to change in congressional districts around the state. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of candidates come forward on the Republican side in who, people who are not uh, uh, already incumbents, of course. Well, and the second thing that goes along with that is also that there was just recently released news that the RNC is already planning for 2020, that they will basically merge their ground game with the Trump campaign, which is a huge deal, right? That's not ever really been done. Usually the party and the campaign run separately. Um, it's notable partly that they've determined this before there's even been a primary because we don't know technically who the Republican nominee will be. But the other thing that it does is it much more directly ties sort of the two together in this support. And one of the things that I think that we saw, uh, maybe not as much in Georgia, though to some degree, right, was this sort of real question of distancing Right, whether or not you're going to run with Trump or, or run away with Trump. I remember uh, one of the meetings that we had, it was before Trump was coming down to campaign with uh, Governor Kemp, and we had sort of a, a debate going of whether or not Karen Handel and Rob Woodall were going to go meet with Trump. And um, as uh, both Jim and Greg said, uh, no, he didn't, right? Because Or no, they both didn't, because they didn't want to go near, right? They were going to say, we're glad that he came, but at the same time, they knew that their voters weren't going to respond to that. And so it's bringing up those sort of same issues, especially as you're trying to recruit candidates. Well, you just made a good point. I mean, Greg, seventh district, we may have we may have a completely open seat by twenty twenty. There's rumors that that could be the, the Rob case. Woodall wouldn't that run Woodall for another term. Work. Yeah. Then the question becomes what you know, how strong a Republican wants to jump into that race. Again, you know, the seventh is on the edge. I yeah. I just wonder about it. I, I mean I don't think there'll be any shortage of interest in either sixth or seventh. Okay. Um, Karen Handel's still looking at a rematch. 
if not her, Brandon Beach has talked to some people about maybe her interest. The interesting thing will be those other not quite as vulnerable seats. Sanford Bishop has long been, you know, a, sort of a dream of for Republicans to target. Will any will any credible Republicans get in that race? Yeah. I don't think so. Right. I doubt it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, Patricia, what? You know, what Amy just talked about to me was really a remarkable story that broke the other day. The RNC and the Trump campaign are going to essentially merge into one mega campaign organization to some extent, given that Rona McDaniel, the RNC chair, has been, I mean, as close to, you know, she is so devoted to Trump, it may not be surprising she would agree to that. But that's unheard of, and it could be a very powerful force for good and ill for Republicans. Sure. Or you, uh, there was news this morning that uh, the South Carolina Republican Party is considering having no primary at all in South Carolina uh, in order to prevent an early challenge to President Trump um, in a p- potential Republican primary. So it's very clear that Republicans have made the decision we are with this president. There will be no daylight. Um, and most of the never Trumpers, the sort of Trumpers, lost their elections the last time around. So the Republican Party that is left is Donald Trump's party. And any um, any pretense that that's not the case really is is not uh, is just not really honest at this point. Um, one of the things about combining uh, those resources is it could create real problems if you wanted to challenge Donald Trump. If you're John Kasich wanting to run as a challenger in the Republican Party, but the RNC is already (laughs) working with Trump. Anyhow, that'll be interesting. All right, wait a minute. I've got to stop everything. Greg Bluestein, this is how this man works. He is sitting here participating fully in our (laughs) program. And I learned from Faust and Jimison, he's also tweeting news while he's sitting here. What's the news about uh, Stacey news? Abrams you Stacey just tweeted Abrams out? Stacey just joined bad. the board of the directors of the Center for American Progress. So another sign that she is oh, nice. staying very, very involved in the political scene. Um, she's, as we've talked about before, not only does she have, still have TV ads, but they're, they're, they're going beyond voting to talk about health care and signing up for, for um, Obamacare, the health care exchange. Um, and also at the same time, she's she's launched her Fair Fight Action um, legal legal uh, organization to try to uh, force changes to the Georgia voting system. So she's got her hand in a lot of different pots right now. Well, she's staying very involved. And she was the most Googled politician of 2018. Yeah. Yeah, period. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are somebody like Stacey Abrams and you've been looking to way you're ma- looking to make your way up the ladder for a long time. If that's your Google result, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> we know why our clicks went up this past year. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also, of course, been rumors, Greg, that she could be, I, and I'm, let me be clear about this. I'm not sure whether this has really been talked about by the highest levels of the Democratic Party leadership, but there's been thoughts that she would actually make a terrific uh, chair of the Democratic National Committee. There's been a lot of talk. I mean, there's been talk about that. There's been talking about her as a VP or even a potential presidential candidate. There's been talk about uh, her running for the Senate against against uh, David Perdue in 2020. I still think the most likely course of action for her seems to be just talking to people around her, a rematch against Brian Kemp in 2022. But if that's the case, she's going to find some way beyond what we've already talked about to stay, stay, in, relevant. stay relevant that long because four years is a long time away. All right, let's do this. Let's get another break out of the way. When we come back, we've got more to talk about on today's Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, Iraq's cruel and corrupt campaign of revenge. We talk with Ben Taub of The New Yorker. He reports that now that ISIS has been driven out of most of Iraq, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, including women and children, are being detained, tortured, killed, or cast out of society suspected of associating with ISIS. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Every day, GPB brings you fact-based news coverage, engaging interviews, and smart entertainment you don't find elsewhere, all thanks to your support. Before 2018 comes to a close, please do your part to keep public broadcasting strong here in Georgia and beyond. Make your tax-deductible year-end gift now. Go to gpb.org or call 800-222-4788. That's gpb.org or 800-222-4788. Thank you and happy holidays.
Welcome back to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, Amy Steigerwald, and Greg Bluestein are with us in the studio today. As I mentioned at the top of the show, they also were with us earlier today when we recorded a best stories in George politics, top 10 stories in 2018. And uh, I, it was a great conversation. Jim Galloway joined us for it. We're going to air it next Monday, uh, Christmas Eve at 2 o'clock. It'll be on uh, uh, TV uh, the following Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. And, and I think we're also going to air it again on New Year's Eve at 2 in the afternoon. So lots of opportunities to hear it. Uh, all right. Let's talk, Greg, about this Winthrop University poll. Um, it, Winthrop University uh, asked, they, they talked to residents in 11 states. This was not a poll of registered voters, likely voters. This was a poll in the general population. So they removed it from any kind of uh, partisan leaning that you might expect pollsters to want to try to uh, assess. They, it, there are some fascinating findings in this. One of them is that more than half of all residents in the 11 southern states they polled, of course, including Georgia, believed that the United States was founded as an explicitly Christian nation. Research, uh, the director of the poll says, research has shown that increases in Christian nationalist beliefs lead to more exclusionary views on immigration and more negative views of multiculturalism in, culturalism in America. Those who hold these views care more about whether they have a strong leader who will protect their religious and cultural values than whether a leader is individually pious. So there's a political spin on a non-political poll. You got it. And, and another another really interesting development from this poll was um, that the support for the Confederate battle, battle flag took a hit. Fifty five percent said the banner was about Southern pride, but only 44 percent were willing to give it their personal endorsement. And 38 percent of white adults viewed the flag unfavorably. Another 19 percent said they didn't know. So that was a big shift from the last time this poll took place. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, Amy, you know, the fact that 55 percent, they don't want to fly the flag. That's clear. A plurality don't. But the fact that 55 percent necess- still insist that it's a symbol of Southern pride and not a remnant of uh, the, the South's raci- racially uh, troubled past still says something about where our attitudes in this uh, part of the country are at today. Well, there's a reason that it is taught as you're growing up about the war of northern aggression and not, of course, the civil war. Is that war. how it was taught to you? Oh, most decidedly. Okay. Was it and you too? Not me. Not no, you. Springs. Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> We, uh, we heard about the war of northern aggression. You certainly heard about, you know, that the, you know, states' rights and, and all of that. And so I think that there still is that. There's a lot of people who don't know the history also of um, even the Georgia flag that we had in the 1950s, right? We switched the one that there were a lot of people that had no idea that that one was put into place in 1956 as a direct response to Brown versus Board of Education. And so some of that um, definitely goes into there. Though an interesting side note on um, actually the response about the Christian nation, um, I have, I'm going to give a plug actually for research, um, a Polish piece that one of my um, colleagues did, Sarah Gershon, that looked at um, attitudes of immigrants. And one of the things that they found was was that uh, immigrants, and particularly Asian immigrants, are much more likely to view, um, and those who have now applied for citizenship, to view being Christian as part of sort of what makes you American, as part of the national identity, um, than other things. And so some of that could also be, ironically enough, the growing immigrant populations and the fact that for a lot of people when they're brought in, there is sort of this attachment between sort of coming to the United States and also because they're a lot of times brought in by church groups and things like that, that there's much more of a linkage given to them between sort of what citizenship means and Christianity. Patricia, when you saw this, what what thoughts did you have? I have to say, I actually thought uh, the South is a little more progressive than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> to be very honest with you. Good. For 58 percent of uh, the population uh, to believe that it is, that the, especially the Confederate flag is a symbol of, um, of uh, Southern Unity. pride, yeah, pride. Uh, and heritage, um, that's lower than it was. I think that we've had a much more fulsome discussion about what the flag means to a number of people. And I would point 
specifically to the shooting at um, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Charleston and the conversation in South Carolina about bringing the state flag off of, I mean, the Confederate flag off of state property and hearing it, a lengthy debate from uh, descendants of slaveholders about what that flag means to them. And I think that opened the eyes of a number of white Southerners of saying, well, I know what I was told it meant when I grew up. Obviously, that's very different for other people um, who I live next to and live among. And so I think that uh, I actually see this as a sign of progress, having been brought up in a state where uh, not only was it called uh, when I went to school, it wasn't called the War of Northern Aggression. It was just called the war. There was no other <laughs> war. This was it. It, you know, it just cast such a long shadow. And I think I see this as incremental progress, actually. All right. I find that interesting. Uh, it. I also I guess because I'm a Chicagoan. <laughs> <laughs> who found myself in the South 35 years ago. Uh, I think I've told this story before. I, the last campaign that I covered when I lived in Chicago was the uh, campaign in which Harold Washington became the first African-American mayor of Chicago. It was a huge story. But when Harold went into uh, uh, some of the white neighborhoods on the northwest side, particularly of the city, it was dangerous to cover him because people would throw bottles, cans, rocks. They didn't care. The epithets that were hurled at him were horrendous. Um, he won. Uh, shortly after he won, I announced to my colleagues in the newsroom at the ABC uh, local newsroom up there, I was coming to Georgia, and everybody said, how can you possibly want to move to the racist South? And I said, have we all lived through the same election, people? You know, Greg, this kind of double standard. I mean, I get that the South has a dark history and one that we continue to grapple with, but uh, we're not alone. No, not at all. I mean, a lot of the northern states have, have and, and they're even more segregated than, than, than the South can be as well, from schools to neighborhoods to, to, to cities. But I will say... That when you listen to, I think his name is Scott Huffman, who uh, is the director of the poll, when he describes what uh, uh, a belief that this is a white Christian nation means, it does tend to move into the political. These, these are the very values that people voted for Donald Trump over. Yeah, I mean, he, he said that, uh, that in, the, in this view, those who hold these views care more about whether they have a strong leader who protect their religious and cultural values than whether a leader is individually pious. Okay. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. Uh, the presidential campaign is absolutely starting. There's no question it is underway. I, want, I was hoping we we're going to get to talk about it today. We won't get a lot of time, but um, Amy, what do we expect? Are we going to see 15 to 20 Democratic candidates want to take on President Trump? Well, I think right now we've got uh, at least 15 that are being thrown into the early polls for people to get an early idea. Um, my bet is that what is, I mean, my, my prediction, which of course could be massively wrong, but likely we're going to start to see that narrow down to about four or five over the next six months, especially as people uh, f decide whether or not they're actually going to formally win, put in committee and raise money. And of course, that's the first part of the game, isn't it, Patricia? The first vote is over writing checks. Who gets the money and who doesn't? It is. But I have to say on the Democrat and Democratic side, especially, there is this really new uh, way to fundraise off of small dollar donors through Act Blue that has absolutely revolutionized what it means to run in a primary. It's also so much less expensive to run because of so much free social media and free airtime you can get if you just light your hair on fire. Um, and uh, I think that we're going to have a large field for some time because I remember covering the Iowa caucuses and uh, the debates leading up to that were like a clown car of 17 uh, candidates and the adults Two table shifts. and yeah. the kids right. table. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're out of time. I brought that up just very briefly because starting in January, we're going to see that field. We're going to have one person after another announce and uh, we'll be covering it all right here on Political Rewind, especially if Georgia does uh, become a state that is competitive in the 2020 race. We're completely out of time for today's show. Uh, Amy, Patricia, Greg, thanks so much, not only for being here for this show, but doing double duty and doing that great year-end top 10 show that we air next week. I appreciate uh, all of you and your participation with us. And I appreciate all of you out there I will see you again on Friday at 2 o'clock. In the meantime, get that Christmas shopping done now.